This is probably the most famous chord in popular music. To me, it's like... Uh, the feeling I might get if I jumped into a lake on a hot summer's day. And just the, the brilliance and the clarity and the coolness of the chords struck me. And, you know, I don't think there's another song quite like it with an opening like that. And, you know, I think it has some underpinnings of classical music. Something like a Rachmaninoff chord might sound like. It's just an indescribable, really, musical chord of beauty. That's Jason Brown. And you know, he's right. The chord is indescribable. That's what the story's about today. For decades, no one's been able to figure out exactly how those couple of seconds of music were made. I'm Joel Werner. This is Sum of All Parts. And today... It's Magical Mystery Chord. It's July 1964, the height of Beatlemania. The Beatles are about to release their third album, and it's a bit of a departure. It's their first full album of original music, there's no cover songs this time around, and it's a shift away from their rock and roll roots to more of a pop sound. But also, the album will act as a soundtrack to the band's first movie. So they need to make a statement. The Beatles needed a big beginning to their first feature film. And I think they played around with different kind of openings. Like, maybe, how about, or perhaps. Until, after a bunch of experimentation, they come up with this the opening chord to the song, album and film, A Hard Day's Night. There's a musicologist called Alan Pollock who examined and analysed all of the Beatles songs and he said that if he were dead for a hundred years and they managed to revive his body at that point, if they played the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night, he would recognise the song that it was from. Jason Brown is a Beatles superfan and his fascination with this chord started early in life. As a teenager, he happened to be learning how to play guitar around the same time he discovered the Beatles. And I would spend eight, ten hours a day in the summer during high school teaching myself to play the Beatles songs. He'd pick up these songbooks with chords to all the Beatles songs, but there was one chord that none of the books seemed to get right. It was in particular the opening chord of A Hard Day's Night. I found one songbook that had the guitar playing a bar chord, which is your index finger across one of the frets, the third fret, didn't sound quite right. And another book had it in a different location with a different chord. And it seemed to me that every book was transcribing what they thought the Beatles had played, but there was no way of telling what was right and what was wrong. But hang on, how can a chord be a mystery? Like, surely with a bit of musical knowledge, you can just figure out what notes fit together to make a particular sound. It's hard to tell what exactly is being played. I mean, people who listen to music, they hear notes that aren't in chords, and they miss notes that are there. So in the absence of having anyone there transcribe what actually was being played, it is a mystery. Every musician, no matter how schooled, will hear different things. You know, especially with chords that aren't of the standard fare, where you might have a chord but extra notes added in that are non-standard 
and unusual. So, there's the fact that this chord's a bit weird that makes it difficult to decipher, but there's also the very nature of our perception, the physics of the way we perceive sound. The way people listen to music is really quite interesting. When a string is plucked, you not only get the main frequency, which is called the fundamental, but you get what are called harmonics, which are multiples of higher multiples of that original frequency. And all of that comes into our ears and our brains have to make sense out of that. And it also includes anything else that might be rattling in the room that all produce their own frequencies. And there's noise. So it's not surprising that as good as we are as humans in deciphering sounds, that we will have some sounds that are difficult to appreciate and understand fully. Okay, so even for trained musicians, figuring out exactly what's being played in any particular chord can be difficult. But this controversy's been going on for decades. Surely you could just ask a Beatle. They come back after 10 years, 15 years. I mean, no one notated things at the time. And no one can quite remember exactly what happened. I think they remember big picture things and some details, but not all the details. By mid-1964, the Beatles were busy. They were doing a lot of recording at the time, and quickly. The song, A Hard Day's Night, was recorded in a single day, and it was the shortest interval between the writing and recording of any Beatles song, except for those they made up on the spot in the studio. And this recording schedule was in addition to playing live, filming movies, publicity engagements, everything else that comes with being the most popular group on the planet, a cultural phenomenon. So it's not inconceivable that you might not remember the specific detail of a particular chord you played over half a century ago. But someone did ask a Beatle. Back in February 2001, in an online chat, someone actually asked George Harrison how he played the opening chord to A Hard Day's Night. And even then, he could only kind of remember his part in the chord and had no idea what any of the other Beatles were playing. He said... You'll have to ask Paul about the bass note to get the proper story. And, as far as I can tell through my own research, no one has. Or at least, there's no record of it. Solving this mystery has become a bit of an obsession for Beatles superfans like Jason Brown. But it's the kind of thing that fascinates other musicians as well. This is Randy Bachman, and I'm a Canadian musician. I was in the Canadian bands The Guess Who, who had many hits, the big one being American Woman. I then uh, wrote and produced and sang in Bachman Turner Overdrive, and our big hits were You Ain't See Nothing Yet, Taking Care of Business. Randy might be rock and roll royalty, but it was on his radio show that he revealed how he got close to solving the mystery of this chord. Okay, the most famous chord ever on a 12-string guitar. This is the one chord that everyone around the world knows. Now, Denise and I were in London last year. A wonderful thing happened. We're supposed to come home on a, a Wednesday, and something goes wrong with our bathroom, and they've got to fix the tile there and stuff. So we stay one more day, and that night, I got an email from Giles Martin, who's George Martin's son. 
And he grew up with all the Beatles, and now he's inherited the throne because his dad's about 82, George Martin's about 82, and pretty much deaf. So Giles Martin is doing all the Beatles stuff, all the remastering that you might have bought at Christmas in mono and stereo, the Cirque du Soleil Beatles thing in Las Vegas, uh, the Beatles rock band, which we bought for Christmas, which was fantastic. To have us singing with three-year-old grandkids, Lucy in the Sky, it's, just, it's a wonderful thing to get. Honestly, you've got to get that. So we go on to... Uh, Charles Martin invites us into the studio. So we go to Abbey Road studio, and it's like the suite. No one else can get in there. Charles Martin gets in, and he invites us in. We go in there. It's incredible. He says to us, I have all the Beatles source tapes. They've all been put in here, what, in a computer, in Pro Tools. What do you want to hear? So the Beatles have recorded, you know, just like 300 songs. And... Uh, I think about it for a while and I say, well, there's been a lot of argument and speculation, and I know guys have written little books on it. The first chord of Hard Day's Night. What is the first chord? He said, okay, I'll let you hear it. So he put up one track at a time, because when you hear it all at once, it's like, bang, it's like the greatest thing to hear all at once. I heard the first chord. It was George on a 12-string, just like this, and it's an F chord, but you put a G on top. And you put a G on the bottom. And you put a C next to that G. Now, I said, and put on Paul's bass. What, what note was Paul playing? D. Paul's playing a D on the bass. And John's rhythm guitar was a D chord with a sus4, which means it got a G note on it. So now listen to this. We only did this yesterday, and it just blew me away. One, two, three, four. Fantastic! Woo! Here we go. One, two, three, four. So, that's it. Case closed, right? Yeah, well, not so fast. The way he describes it is that he heard each instrument individually. They weren't recorded on separate tracks back then. There wouldn't have been room to record them each on separate tracks. But the process of separating the instruments was done through software, I think, for the rock band game. But the software that decomposes it is not 100% accurate. Okay, so what Jason's getting at here is that during the recording of A Hard Day's Night, the drums, bass, and two guitars were recorded onto a single track, the same track. And the thing is, once you do that, you can't undo it. All the different sounds are there on top of each other, on the same track, recorded at the same time. So for the rock band game, to isolate the individual instruments that Randy Bachman heard, they would have had to use software to artificially undo it all. But Jason had a hunch that this software, it was wrong. And the reason for his hunch was that he'd run a similar analysis himself. I had known about the controversy since I had tried to play the chord on the guitar. And in 2004, I'd heard that it was the Beatles' 40th anniversary of A Hard Day's Night, and that got me thinking about it again. By that point, I was no longer a teenager, but I was a math professor. And I'd had many years of mathematics behind me, and I thought of combining the music with the mathematics and thinking about whether there'd be a scientific way to decide how the chord was being played. So Jason, 
Beatles superfan and mathematician, recruited science to help solve this mystery. I was in the habit of reading math books, which would rank for most people as a strange hobby. <laughs> not at all. Not, not for me anyway. I think we're, we're <laughs> like-minded souls, Jason. <laughs> I just picked up math books to read for interest. And one of the books that I picked up had a chapter on mathematics and sound. And it was in this chapter that Jason first heard about Fourier transforms, a mathematical technique that lets you take a signal, say a chord, and break it down into its component parts, or the fundamental notes that make it up. So what I did was I took a segment of the opening chord and I ran it through this Fourier transform algorithm. So I could decompose the segment of the opening chord into a bunch of these fundamental notes. And I got a lot of them. I got of the order of 30,000 of them. So that famous chord, the opening chord to A Hard Day's Night, is made up of 30,000 frequencies. But this was only part of Jason's discovery. You see, his analysis also revealed the relative loudness of each of those frequencies. I realised that the notes that were actually being played in the chord would be amongst the loudest ones. Now, of course, there might be things like harmonics that I mentioned earlier and you know, other frequencies that might correspond to noise, but this allowed me to start making some mathematical deductions from the data that I got. So Jason starts attributing these loud frequencies to the instruments that science says should have played them. And this is where the weirdness kicks in. On the one hand, he found a bunch of notes that he and everyone else expected to be there. But on the other hand, a surprise, missing pieces. While I found out there were certain notes in the chord that I expected, there were other notes that I thought were in the chord that weren't there, that people had transcribed into the chord because they believed that it had to be in the chord, but actually weren't there. They were deciding that they heard those frequencies because they ought to be there, when in fact they weren't there. These are like ghost notes, notes that your brain expects to hear based on the context they appear in the song, but that actually aren't there. Like, pretty much every Beatles songbook transcribes the chord with a G note on the lowest guitar string. But that note just isn't there in the actual recording. There are Gs in the chord. They're just no low G on the bottom. And I think the reason that people put the low G in the chord is their analysis was tainted from music theory. They understood that the key of the song was the key of G, and perhaps they felt because they heard a G in the chord, it ought to be a G chord. There ought to be a G at the bottom. But that's a musical inference, and it's not something that you can say definitively, and actually the analysis indicated to me that there wasn't a G on the bottom. In fact, what I found out from my analysis was that the bottom note being played is a D on Paul McCartney's Hofner bass, and in fact, the notes being played by George Harrison don't have a G on the bottom, they actually have an A on the bottom. And as if Jason's analysis wasn't tricky enough to begin with, what with 30,000 frequencies and ghost notes, it was made even more difficult by the fact that, get this, the Beatles weren't even in tune. Well, that's one of the things that you can't tell by listening to it. What I found out is when I was moving the frequencies to the closest note, some were quite a distance away from what would be the closest note. And I think, you know, what must have gone on was by the time the Beatles recorded their final take, which was take nine, just before that, their producer, George Martin, should have rapped on the uh, window and said, uh, lads, we better tune up again. You're slightly out of tune. But he didn't say that, I don't think. 
So it is slightly out of tune forever, but that's part of the beauty of the chord. And while ghost notes and out of tune guitars are pretty weird, they're not even the weirdest thing that Jason found, not by a long shot. From everything that I had read before, including George Martin saying, you know, it was a wonderful chord that George Harrison played on his 12 string, I had expected that it was just George Harrison's 12 string. But of course, I understood how that 12 string was strung. And I began to make some deductions, but I ran into a roadblock because it wasn't quite playable on a guitar. And it wasn't quite playable even on George Harrison's brand new 12 string Rickenbacker guitar. And I knew what the other Beatles had played, possibly on that chord, John Lennon's rhythm guitar and Paul McCartney's bass. And even knowing all that, I still ran into logical problems with trying to deduce who played what, even if I allowed the chord to be not just being played by George Harrison, but by John Lennon and Paul McCartney. No matter which way Jason arranged his data, it never completely lined up with the instruments that the Beatles were playing. This chord wasn't playable by the Beatles on their three Beatle guitars. Well, the problem was that I got stuck. And I got stuck because I had three frequencies for a certain F note. And the way Jason was working was that once he'd matched a frequency to a note, he'd then go and match that note to an instrument. But these F notes, they just weren't sticking to any of the three Beatle guitars. Now, the way a 12-string is strung is such that if George Harrison had played that F frequency, you would have had the frequency up the octave, which wasn't there, which tell me those three F frequencies weren't coming from George Harrison's guitar. Now, perhaps one of those was being played by John Lennon on his guitar, and perhaps, though it's very unlikely. Paul McCartney was playing more than one note on his bass, and that might give another F frequency. But then you were left with a third F frequency, which had no home, no source. And so I almost gave up looking at the chord, but then I realized that I had an assumption that I had carried with me because it was just natural, based on everything I had read, that the Beatles had played that opening chord. But what happens if that assumption wasn't quite true? What happens if there was another instrument? You ready for this? This is Jason's moment of genius. One thing that I realized was a piano typically has three strings tuned identically corresponding to each note, and a hammer hits them. So perhaps those three frequencies could come from a single note on the piano. And I remembered that later on in the song, you can clearly hear a piano doubling George Harrison's lead guitar solo. So I thought maybe there is a piano in the song. A piano? So it became very important to me to find out whether a piano might be the source for these three F frequencies. So I had to run down to a store and stick my head inside different pianos, grand pianos, to see (laughs) where they change from two to three. And so before I got thrown out of the store by the manager, I managed to determine, yes, it was plausible. And it actually told me a little deduction about the piano used in the Abbey Road Studios to record that chord, and it told me that it was a mid-sized grand piano as opposed to a much larger grand piano because of where, where that note sits. These missing F notes, they could only be made by a mid-sized grand piano. There's somehow 
unique parts to how a piano is strung over its entire range. And in mathematics, you look for those unique things because there's something that you can hang your arguments on. The final piece slid into the puzzle. Buried deep in the mix of the shimmering opening chord to a hard day's night, someone, maybe Ringo, but probably George Martin, had played an F note on a mid-sized grand piano. The imperceptible nuance that gives the chord its magic touch. In that moment, Jason knew that he'd solved the Beatles mystery, a mystery that had been buzzing around his subconscious brain for decades, ever since he was a teenager learning to play Beatles songs on his summer break. Yes, you know, it was extraordinarily exciting. I've done math research over the years, and I still feel like a little kid when it comes to doing research, that I find out new stuff all the time, and that's a pleasure in itself just uncovering something new. You know, it is fascinating that the chord was a mystery for such a long time, and people still talk about it. You know, what they did with the tools that they had at hand. I mean, they don't have the kind of software and devices that we have now where you can do all sorts of tricks with frequencies, they had to just make a mystery out of standard instruments and notes being played on them. It's just fascinating. I think George Martin describes creating mysteries in songs like a film producer creating special effects in a movie. If James Bond jumped through a plate glass window, the director doesn't come on screen and say, don't worry about the actor, he's fine. It's just it's some film trickery. The Beatles didn't feel the need to explain the mysteries that they put into their songs, the musical mysteries. That may be, you know, one of the legacies of the Beatles music is the brilliance of what they put into their songs on so many levels that people 40, 50 years later and undoubtedly longer will still be analyzing them and still be trying to figure out what made them so great. Some of All Parts is produced by me, Joel Werner, Jonathan Webb is science editor, Sophie Townsend story editor, and sound design is by me and Mark Don. Thanks to mathematician, musician, and Beatles superfan Jason Brown of Dalhousie University. Jason is also author of the excellent book Our Days Are Numbered. Give it a read. Thanks also to rock and roll legend Randy Bachman. Randy, I've had your Ain't Seen Nothing Yet stuck in my head ever since we spoke. Do you have an earworm antidote? Seriously, please send help, soap at abc.net.au. Same with anyone else who has a story about a number or the cure for an infectious tune. I love hearing from you, so please drop me a line. But for now, that's it. <laughs> <laughs>